Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I'm Chip Yurkaitis, a partner in Kelly Dry's Communications Group. Today, we turn our attention to the Federal Communication Commission's June 8th open meeting. And this is the first of two podcasts on that meeting. I'm joined today by my colleague, Special Counsel Mike Dover, who will be discussing the FCC's report and order adopted at the meeting, which will require video conferencing platforms to comply with accessibility requirements under the Communications Act and agency rules that govern interoperable video conferencing services and an associated rulemaking. Before we get to that, I will discuss the Commission's new rulemaking concerning the 42 gigahertz band from 42.0 to 42.5 gigahertz. In part two of our June open meeting coverage, we will discuss a new FCC proceeding that will consider rule changes to enhance consumers' ability to revoke consent to receive robocalls and robotexts, as well as a commission order confirming a $225 million forfeiture issued against a telemarketer for unlawful robocalls seeking to sell short-term limited duration health insurance plans. Now to the first of the two items we will talk about today. In 2014, the commission launched its Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, looking at the prospects of repurposing or reallocating a variety of spectrum bands between 24 and 95 gigahertz. This led to several significant reallocations of spectrum for flexible mobile and fixed use, along with the endearing acronym of of UMFIS for Upper Microwave Flexible Use Services. These reallocations were followed by three spectrum auctions of millimeter wave spectrum and spectrum below 30 gigahertz. All told, the commission has made available on an exclusively licensed geographic area basis a total of 4.95 gigahertz of spectrum above 24 gigahertz as a result of the Spectrum Frontiers Notice of Inquiry, which commenced nine years ago and the rulemakings that followed. This was not accomplished without some controversy, most infamously perhaps being the tussle between NTIA, NASA, and NOAA on the one hand, and the FCC and the mobile industry on the other, over questions regarding coexistence in and near the 24 gigahertz band between the Earth Exploration Satellite and Space Research Services with flexible mobile use. The Commission also made 14 gigahertz of spectrum available for unlicensed use at 57 to 71 gigahertz, and just last month adopted new rules that open up the 57 to 64 gigahertz range to an even broader variety of unlicensed radar applications, a topic we covered in our last podcast several weeks ago. Now the commission is revisiting a portion of the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding that did not result in any new spectrum allocations. 
namely the 42 to 42.5 gigahertz band in a rulemaking that was launched by the June open meeting. In the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, this band was not one that the commission ultimately identified for which it would adopt rules and conduct an auction. And five years ago, the commission, as required by the Mobile Now Act, issued a third further NPRM in the Spectrum Frontiers matter to again consider service rules and licensing rules for the 42 gigahertz band. But that proceeding too stalled without resolution. What's new today, besides a shiny new docket number, WT docket number 23158, is that the commission is explicitly seeking as its primary proposal comment on a non-exclusive or sharing spectrum access model for flexible use spectrum. In the commission's words, it seeks to, quote, lower barriers to entry for smaller or emerging wireless service providers, encourage competition and prevent spectrum warehousing, end quote. Let's take a brief look at what's in the proposal. The 42 gigahertz band is allocated today on a non-federal basis only to the fixed mobile services on a primary basis, but has no incumbent licensees and no existing service or license rules today. There are just a few experimental licenses that have been granted in the band. So this is essentially Greenfield Spectrum, making it tabula rasa for the commission. Although the agency will want to keep in mind the adjacent band uses in fashioning any new rules. There are satellite services in the band immediately below 42 gigahertz and just above the 42 gigahertz band. The spectrum includes allocations to radio astronomy services on a primary basis for both federal and non-federal use, and also to federal only fixed, fixed satellite in the Earth's space direction and mobile services. In earlier stages of the spectrum frontiers proceeding, the commission expressed specific concern about means to protect radio astronomy if commercial operations were introduced into the 42 gigahertz band. In this new NPRM, the commission solicits views on sharing because radio signals in these higher frequencies at the same power have shorter propagation ranges. Although I would mention that spectrum in the 39 and 47 gigahertz band ranges were auctioned exclusively late in the last decade. The spectrum at 42 gigahertz also does not penetrate solid barriers well, and atmospheric absorption is high, both characteristics that the commission believes lends the band to sharing. In addition, methods such as MIMO, multiple input, multiple output antennas, and beamforming antennas offer additional possibilities for reuse between multiple operators. The commission in this case appears to suggest that sharing will put the currently unused band to its best and highest use, in part because it will add variety to the access schemes in the lower millimeter wave range, specifically contrasting with the exclusive licensing I mentioned in the nearby but non-adjacent 39 gigahertz range. The commission is striving for, quote, a shared licensing scheme that may be optimized for future use, end quote. 
the NPRM also suggests that the commission is not high on making the band available for unlicensed use, noting the difficulty of resolving potential interference from unlicensed devices into radio astronomy operations just above the 42 gigahertz band. Nonetheless, despite the clear focus on a shared spectrum regime for the 42 gigahertz band, the NPRM welcomes comment on both exclusive licensed access as well as allowing unlicensed devices into the 42 gigahertz band. As for sharing schemes, the primary points within the NPRM, the NPRM sets up several schemes for comment, drawing on experiences in other bands and inviting proposals of alternatives. One method the Commission seeks comment on is a framework similar to that used in the E-band. In other words, the 71 to 76, 81 to 86, and 92 to 95 gigahertz ranges. Specifically there, the Commission instituted a light licensing approach. Operators in the E-band obtain nationwide non-exclusive licenses and then coordinate specific deployments through a third-party database requiring the establishment of one or several database administrators. While the E-band is used for point-to-point -point and point-to-multipoint operations only, the Commission acquires in this new NPRM whether this same type of licensing approach could facilitate mobile use in the 42 gigahertz band in addition to the fixed applications. A second method of for consideration is site-based licensing by the Commission. This approach would obviate the need for a database and an administrator and follow, follow the lines of more traditional coordinated licensing where a first-in-time principle applies in terms of priority access among licensees. The NPRM suggests that this approach would allow the Commission to be more responsive to potential interference and access disputes. The Commission is particularly interested in receiving comment on the relative efficiencies of this approach and the light licensing approach I mentioned earlier. To that end, the Commission also seeks comment on whether, in a, at a given site, licensing should be further broken down and coordinated on a sector-by-sector -sector basis. Yet a third method suggested by the Commission borrows from proposals made by Qualcomm in the context of the lower 37 gigahertz shared band, in particular, a technology-based long-term sensing mechanism, which would automatically inform radios what frequencies they could use. This technique would be combined with non-exclusive geographic area-based licensing and would require coordination among licensees on an ongoing basis. In connection with these methods, the Commission is also desirous of comment on a variety of coordination mechanisms, some of which may be better suited for certain licensing schemes, but not for others. The NPRM also solicits comment on what services would be best facilitated by each licensing model and what barriers to, to potential deployment, operation, or equipment availability might be created by each regime. Another global issue, which is central to almost any shared licensing regime, is how any instances of interference will be resolved. Will licenses that first deploy be entitled to protection from those whose deployments come later? 
Should the commission mandate certain technological features to enhance the sharing potential, such as time division, duplex synchronization? The commission also invites comments on a wide variety of other issues. For example, whether build-out requirements should apply to licensees using the spectrum on a shared basis under any of the regimes under discussion, and if so, what those requirements should look like in terms of timing and the showing that licensees would have to make. Another question is what term is appropriate for licenses under a shared regime? The NPRM proposes a 10-year period, which is consistent with Part 30 UMFAS licenses and other millimeter wave bands. A further question is whether Part 30-like technical rules should apply or whether changes to those rules are appropriate in a shared versus an exclusive licensing regime. Finally, in 2018, the Commission proposed licensing five 100 megahertz wide channels in the 40 gigahertz band. It makes a similar proposal in this new proceeding, but asks whether this proposal makes sense under a shared licensing framework that is being considered, or whether a different channel size would be better. As I noted earlier, radio astronomy operates just above the 42.5 gigahertz band edge. One of the key spectral lines in this range is that of silicon monoxide, which plays a particular role in our understanding of regions in space where young stars are being formed. The NPRM seeks additional comment on how highly sensitive radio astronomy operations at a number of observatories around the country should be protected in this frequency band if the 42 gigahertz band is reallocated for fixed and or mobile use. For context, the commission notes that a typical radio astronomy telescope receives less than 1% of 1 billionth of 1 billionth of a watt, that's 10 to the minus 20 watts, from a typical cosmic object, making such a telescope particularly vulnerable to not only, not only in-band emissions from other sources, but also out-of-band emissions in adjacent spectrum and emissions producing harmonics into the 43 gigahertz band. Candidates for a coexistence framework with radio astronomy include geographic separation, which the commission appears to favor in this particular band, or limiting emissions from the 42 gigahertz band licensees into the 43 gigahertz radio astronomy band, also favored by the commission, and then there are other possibilities, such as coordination zones and guard bands. So once again, for a third time, the commission is taking a look at the 42 gigahertz band. Perhaps this time is the charm to put this band to work. Now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Mike Dover, who will talk to you about the FCC's accessibility item at the June open meeting. Thanks, Chip. The Commission also adopted a report and order, notice of proposed rulemaking, and waiver order seeking to expand disability access to video conferencing at its June open meeting. The urgency of expanded disability access to video conferencing services was made clear in response to the heavy reliance on video conferencing services during the COVID-19 pandemic. During the pandemic, 
Of course, employers, schools, government agencies, doctors, and other organizations relied on video conferencing as an essential communications tool. That reliance has continued past the end of the pandemic. However, people with disabilities have reported problems fully accessing video conferences. Some of these problems include no or limited captioning, ineffective display of sign language interpreters, the inability of blind or low vision users to find and use volume controls, and inefficient user control accessibility tools. In addition, the use of telecommunications relay services, or TRS, and video relay services, or VRS, for video conferencing is difficult. As a result, the commission item at the last open meeting takes three primary steps to expand disability access to video conferencing services. First, in a report and order, the commission provides clarification regarding the definition of interoperable video conferencing services. Pursuant to the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, interoperable video conferencing service and equipment used for interoperable video conferencing service must be accessible to and usable by people with disabilities unless that goal is not achievable. Second, the, in the NPRM, the commission proposes rule amendments to make interoperable video conferencing service more accessible to people with disabilities and proposes amendments to its TRS rules to facilitate use of VRS or video relay service uh, services in video conferences. And third, in the order, the commission grants a limited waiver related to the VRS privacy screen rule, which currently restricts VRS users' ability to turn off their video cameras when not actively participating in a video conference. Interoperable video conferencing services, or IVCS, is statutorily required to be accessible to people with disabilities and statutorily defined as, quote, a service that provides real-time video communications, including audio, to enable users to share information of the user's choosing, end quote. The statutory definition is incorporated directly into the commission's rules at part 14. In the report and order, upon review of comments related to clarification about the scope of IVCS, the commission declines to revise its rule definition. The commission explains that by its terms, the statutory definition of interoperable video conferencing service encompass, encompasses a variety of video communication services that are commonly used today or that may be used in the future to enable two or more users to share information with one another. The commission concludes that the scope of IVCS is not limited by type of use, such as online meetings, or by type of service, such as point-to-point -point or multi-point conversations, or based on the type of device used to access the video conference service. The commission also concludes that the scope of IVCS is not limited by options offered to users for connecting to a video conference. 
Therefore, an IVCS may occur through a dial-up telephone connection by broadband or through a downloadable app or a web browser. The Commission's interpretation of the statute resolves ambiguities related to the inclusion of the word interoperable as part of the term video conferencing services in the statute and the Commission rule, with the Commission taking an expansive approach to the definition. As a result, the Commission says, if it is a service that provides real-time video communications, including audio, to enable users to share information of the user's choosing, then it is an IVCS, regardless of the inclusion of the word interoperable in the term. The Commission's interpretation of IVCS is deemed effective 30 days after publication of the report and order in the Federal Register. In the NPRM, the Commission proposes amendments to its rules to include additional performance objectives for the accessibility of interoperable video conferencing services, including performance objectives related to speech to text, which is captioning of all voice communications in a video conference and text to speech, and relating to enabling the use of sign language interpreting. In addition, in the NPRM, the Commission proposes to amend Part 64 of its rules to permit the use of TRS funds to support TRS for video conferencing users and proposes modifications to specify the conditions under which the TRS fund will support the provision of TRS with video conferencing. I'll detail some of the Commission's NPRM proposals, but I encourage listeners to refer directly to the NPRM for additional proposals and details. With respect to the Commission's video conferencing performance objectives, the Commission's proposals include permitting IVCS providers to choose whether to satisfy their accessibility obligations by including certain features as native applications or by using third-party applications, peripheral devices, hardware, software uh, that is available to the consumer at a nominal cost. In addition, the Commission uh, proposes adopting performance objectives specific to IVCS for the provision of uh, captions for audio communications in the video conferences. Um, and the proposals include requirements that the captions be accurate and synchronous uh, with speech uh, and comparable to that provided on TRS-funded supported captions telephone service. Uh, in addition, other proposals include adopting a requirement that the that IVCS at a minimum provide text to speech functionality, uh, adopting a performance objective that IVCS enable the provision of sign language interpreting, such as through a third party interpreting service or a VRS provider, and requiring control functions necessary for a user to operate a covered device or product. Uh, which would permit users to adjust the display of captions, uh, speakers and signers, and other features uh, for user interface control. The Commission also inquires uh, in the NPRM whether it should adopt technical standards as a safe harbor for compliance to facilitate the manufacturer and service providers' compliance with these proposals. With respect to amending the TRS rules to facilitate video conferencing access, the Commission proposals include some of the following. 
um, amending the commission's rules to specify that to validate the integrated provision of VRS in a video conference, information may be entered in a video conference application by a user and transmitted by the IVCS provider to a VRS provider, along with a request uh, to provide a communications assistant, requiring VRS to collect and provide call record call detail records to submit to TRS fund administrators, uh, where the calls are uh, provided on an integrated basis, authorizing a single VRS provider to assign multiple CAs for a video conference in certain circumstances, and to receive additional compensation from the TRS fund for minutes involving multiple CAs, permitting multiple CAs on a conference, but requiring that if the VRS user who requested service leaves a video conference or is disconnected, requiring the communication assistant to leave the conference as well. In addition, the commission proposes modifications to the privacy screen rule. Uh, the privacy screen rule uh, currently requires uh, VRS communication assistants uh, who are participating in a call to disconnect the call if the caller or called party enables a visual privacy screen, um, such as blocking a camera for more than five minutes or is otherwise responsive or unengaged for more than five minutes. The commission's proposal would allow the VRS communications assistant to continue providing relay services integrated with a multi-party video conference where the user is turned off the video connection for more than five minutes, as long as at least one other party is continuing to speak on the conference. Uh, in, in effect, this proposal would permit users to turn off their video cameras during a video conferencing uh, call without losing the communication assistant relay services. Comments on these proposals are due 30 days after the NPRM is published in the Federal Register, and reply comments are due 60 days after the NPRM is published in the Federal Register. Lastly, in the order, the Commission issues a limited partial waiver of the privacy screen rule to allow users and communication assistants to turn off their videos during the video conference, uh, during a video conference pending the commission's action on the proposals about the privacy screen rule that I just described. Uh, the waiver is limited. It, it will terminate one year from the date of the order or on the effective date of the commission's amendments to uh, the rule, whichever is earlier. Uh, at its June meeting, the commission unanimously adopted the video accessibility report and order, NPRM and waiver order and um, we expect it to be uh, published in the Federal Register soon. Thank you for joining us for our first take on some of the Commission's June open meeting items. Join us again next time for our first take of Commission Action. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP its staff or management.